Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Jesus never suffered in hell. That is a made-up teaching. And I don't know if it, if it has some kind of a sense where it seems like it is true, but the Bible never says such a thing, and it goes against what the Bible says about the price that He paid on the cross, finishing the work for us, shedding His blood, that our sins could be forgiven. What happened to all of the Old Testament saints who died before Jesus came to earth? The answer to that interesting question and many of the details surrounding it has been the topic of many false teachings. Today on Practical Christian Living, we are studying the scriptures, dividing the Word of God to search exactly what it says about the period of time between Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection. Here's more from last time with Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. That's one of the questions that we're asking today. Did Jesus go to hell and suffer for you and me? There are those that teach that Jesus went there to suffer because we had to have someone suffer for us. In other words, they say that the work on the cross was not enough. Jesus didn't complete the work there. Beside, I mean, he said it is finished, but it wasn't finished. And he had to go and suffer for us because we needed someone to suffer that penalty of hell for us. The Bible never teaches that. By the way, those who teach this thing are those that are part of the faith movement. The faith movement was founded by Kenneth Hagin. Kenneth Copeland, Creflo Dollar are involved in that today. Um, uh, you, uh, Joel Osteen is kind of the faith movement light, and he will teach some of these things. This is a dangerous doctrine because it, it has to do with salvation and where our Savior died for us. But they teach a couple other things that are even more dangerous. First of all, the faith movement teaches that God wants you to be rich. And I think this is a direct connection to the tickling of the ears, itching of the ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle your ears. They go, God wants you rich. And you go, amen. I want to be rich too. I receive that, brother. I want to be rich. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if anybody teaches godliness as a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them but godliness with great gain, but, excuse me, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So if we are content where we are financially, and we know God takes care of us, right? God said, I'll take care of you. I'll give you your needs. God meets our needs. And God does abundantly, exceedingly abundantly above that. But to say that someone who is not rich or who doesn't have a lot of money, you don't have faith is, is a false teaching. They also teach that God never wants you sick. And if you are sick, then it is because you have a lack of faith. And I want to say that it, it takes faith to be healed. If you say, God, I, heal me. That's a step of faith. You're stepping out. You know that God can heal and you're stepping out and asking him. But it also takes faith to say, your will be done. And it also takes faith to say, Lord, I realize you're not going to heal me and I'm going to go through this illness and it may be the end of my life, but I trust you and I will serve you no matter what. Like the children in the, the children of Israel in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into the furnace in Daniel, they said, God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're going to serve him. And that's how we approach sickness. We want to be delivered. We want to be healed. We ask God to heal us. And God does heal today, but not everyone. That's God's choice. And they'll tell you when you're not healed, they'll shun people who are not healed. 
because they'll tell them it is a lack of faith. You either have sin in your life or it is a lack of faith. And if it's a lack of faith, then you spot us because those guys that lowered Jesus down, I mean, <laughs> those guys that lowered the, I need to slow down. The guys who lowered the paralyzed man down, Jesus said to him, pick up your bed and walk. And he said, it was the faith of your friends that made you whole. It's not always our faith, but it's the faith of someone else. And so when someone prays for you and says you didn't have enough faith to be healed, well, they didn't have enough faith to heal you as well. And that is a false teaching as well. And maybe even more dangerous than that, they teach that you, they elevate us, people. They say that we are little gods with a small g, meaning I have the ability to speak things into existence and I'm better than I think I am because I belong to God. And, and if I'm a child of God, then I'm a God. And so we're a little God. So they elevate mankind. And I think we could see a lot of problems with that, right? But they also bring Jesus down as well. They de-elevate Jesus. And they say that Jesus was not God when he was born, but that he was a normal human who became God. So now they're saying that normal human, a normal human became God and people who are normal humans can become God. And all of these are false teachings. All of these are unbiblical. And for those of you who listen to the teachings from these people, from Joyce Myers or Joel Osteen or, or Kenneth Copeland, and you've been blessed by their studies, I understand that. I understand that God moves when people teach. But I would, I would encourage you to look as to whether or not I am right about what these people are teaching. Because they are false teachings and they are dangerous and they fall in that category of, of, lifting, up, of, of, of lifting up teachers that will tickle our ears. And so we have the Apostles' Creed. So we're talking about Jesus, whether or not he went to hell, because all of them in the faith movement teach that Jesus died on the, on the cross, went to hell and suffered uh, the punishment of hell for us. And so we have the Apostles' Creed. You guys know the Apostles' Creed, right? A lot of you guys memorized it. And in the Apostles' Creed, it says something I want to point out. I want to read the Apostles' Creed to you. This was, um, by the way, um, it first appeared in 390, in the, in the, in the late 300s. And then it became adopted by the church. And when you're looking for a church that believes in the scriptures, that believes things correctly, you want them to align themselves with what we find in the Apostles' Creed. Okay? That doesn't mean it's the Word of God. It means this has been very well put together by the church. So listen to what it says. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. That's the part we're going to come back to. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the Almighty. And there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and everlasting life. Amen. By the way, the Apostles' Creed is a good creed. But I want you to know that right after this came on the scene, there were those that began to change it. And they began to change that one line. He descended into hell. And they changed that to he descended and you will find different versions of the Apostles' Creed because that is the one spot in the creed that people have questions about. 
Did Jesus descend into hell? Now, when we think about that, I want to give you the different words in the Bible that are translated hell. In the Old Testament, the word Sheol was used. And Sheol in the Old Testament, although sometimes you get a glimpse or a hint of something other than the grave, that something else is going on there other than the grave, you don't have anything explicitly said. Sheol makes reference to the grave. David says, in the grave, there is no memory of you. In Sheol, there is no memory of you. Uh, that that the, in, in the grave, we will, you know, the, the things that we are absent from when we go into the grave. And in the Old Testament, that is translated hell most often. And personally, I like the translations that translated grave. Because when you and I hear, think of hell, we often think of the middle century hell. We think of a burning fire, we think of people being tormented, and we think of people being tortured, right? But in the Old Testament, when it uses that term, it uses the term Hades, which simply means the grave or the place of those who have died afterwards. And it might include torment in the Old Testament when they make a reference to it, but it literally means the grave. Now, in the New Testament, there is the word Tartarus, and we're going to look at that word here in a moment. It's only used two times, and it talks about a pit, and it is translated hell in some translations as well. And Jesus used the term hell. He used the word Gehenna, which was the valley where they had the garbage dump. And so Jesus would say, it'd be better for you to go into eternity lame than to go into the garbage dump where there's gnashing of teeth. He used the garbage dump, burning garbage dump, as a picture of hell and what hell would be like, where the, where the fire never goes out and where the worm never dies. That's the picture that Jesus gave, okay? So when we talk about Jesus descending into hell, did he descend into the grave? Did he descend into the pit? Did he descend into Gehenna, hell fire? That's the question that we want to look at. Let's take a look at a few things. Open up your Bible or turn your Bible to uh, 2 Peter 2.4. I'll give you a few verses here and uh, we, we need to talk about some things again that are pretty interesting. Uh, 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels who sinned. Now we know that there were some angels and they sinned. If God, and God didn't spare them. If God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell, that word there is tart Tartarus, okay? That could be translated pit and is translated pit and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So those angels that sinned were cast into a pit and are in chains awaiting judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so he talks about these angels that didn't keep their proper place in the time of the flood. And then in 1 Peter 3, 19, let's turn there. I want to make sure that's right because I, I don't have that written down in my notes, but I want to make sure it's right. 1 Peter 3, 19, by whom also he went and preached. Is that there? Is that right? Is that 1 Peter 3, 19? Okay, good. All right, I'm going to stop looking then. All right, so 1 Peter 3, 19 says, by whom he also went and preached to the angels in prison, Tartarus who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved 
through fire. So now we, we learn that Jesus went and preached to these angels that were bound in prison in the pit. And we've got to ask, what did those angels do? And in order to do that, we've got to go back to Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4 that says that there were the angel, the, that there were the sons of God who saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and made their home with them. And Nephilim were in the land in those days. And there's a connection between the abode of the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim that were there. And it says, and in the days after that. Now, those four little verses that I just quoted have caused all kinds of problems because the word sons of God, ben Elohim, is never used to speak of humans in the Bible. It's only used to speak of angels. And that's in the book of, of Job, where it says that the sons of God were bringing themselves in front of God and Satan was numbered among them. And God said to Satan, where have you been? Well, I've been moving up and down on the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? And it enters into that whole thing. And so there's, there's two theories as to what's going on here. Number one is that angels took the form of a human. And, and I know that Jesus said that angels don't marry when they're in heaven, but he made this distinction. Angels will be like the angels who don't marry in heaven. And so he made this distinction of heaven. And I understand that. And, and this is a frightening thought. I understand that as well, that, the, that these angels saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and made homes with them. They literally entered into mankind. And it may very well be that Satan knew that Genesis 3 said that the, the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There was going to be this battle between a Messiah and then he had, might have been trying to pervert bringing the Messiah in. That's one thought. It's a strange thought, I know. But just because something is strange doesn't mean it's not right. In fact, it's the oldest thought. The book of Enoch talks about this. And the book of Enoch was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and it predates Jesus. Judaism believed this and taught this predating Jesus. The second thought is that it's the sons of Seth. And when you are reading Genesis, you do find as you get into chapter six that it gives this genealogy of the children, the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain. There are two distinct lines. So we could say this is in context where you have a, a, the children of Seth and the children of Cain. And so the second thought is that God didn't want them to intermingle. We don't know why. We're not told anything about that. The Bible never says the sons of Seth couldn't marry the daughters of Cain. We do know that they went on their own different lines, but we don't know why that would be bad. But the idea is that the sons of Seth saw the daughters of men, that would be the daughters of the line of Cain, that they were beautiful and made their homes with them. But if that's the case, then why did God get so angry about it and say, my spirit will no longer live with men because that's that passage. And what are the Nephilim? Why did the Nephilim come? And I, I lean towards, you guys can tell, I lean towards the weird one. And, and, and I lean towards that because of the two passages that we read, which says Jesus went and preached to the spirits who were in prison who didn't keep their proper abode, that's home, in, uh, in the days of Noah. And so what, if it's not those angels, then which angels is it? Also, I told you the book of Enoch talks about these things. Uh, excuse me, the book of Jude quotes the book of Enoch 
And in Jude 1, 6, it says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, again, home, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. This is a third reference to these angels that didn't keep their proper abode. And it's in Jude, Jude 6. Jude only has one chapter. So it's Jude chapter 1, 6. Later on, he quotes from the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is a non-biblical book, but Jude quotes from it. And Enoch talks about these angels that didn't keep their proper abode. So he ties it in. So I lean towards that. Now, there's a lot of other views that people have come up with. And if you're interested in it, you could take time to go study it. Because there's, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight different views that are there. But another one that I find at least plausible would be a combination of the two main ideas. The main idea, and most pastors, by the way, are going to say it's the line of Seth and are marrying with the line of Cain. Because then they avoid a whole lot of questions. How can a demon have, you know, sex with a woman? How can a demon marry and have offspring? I mean, how can that happen? Right? And there's problems with that. I understand it. So they avoid all of that by saying it's the line of Seth and marrying with the line of Cain, but they have problems too. The line of, yeah, line of Seth and marrying the line of Cain. They have problems as well because why did God get so mad and, and, and where did the Nephilim come from? Also, people can be demon-possessed. And it may be that demons, that God did want the line of Cain and Seth separate and that demons entered men of the line of Seth. There's problems with that, Okay. Because if the line of Seth is godly and you have the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain, you got some problems with that. But you have demons that entered into certain men from the line of Seth and they married women and being demon-possessed, they had offspring. And the offspring, the result of these demon-possessed men were the offspring that were the Nephilim. That's a combination of both of those ideas. Now, again, I understand that it's weird but here is where the Bible says that he descended. He went to the pit and proclaimed to them. Why would Jesus, after he died on the cross, why would he in a spirit form, and remember, spirit forms can take on body forms as well, so there's no reason to, for us to think that during those three days Jesus couldn't have taken on some kind of a spirit kind of a body. Why would he go and preach to them? Because if they were trying to contaminate the human line for the promise of the Messiah, then Jesus would, would make an open spectacle of them, as it says in Colossians. He would be saying to them, we have been victorious. We have crushed the head of the serpent. Death is done, and I have received that wound in my heel. So that is a possibility. Now, there's one other passage that we should talk about with descending, and this is a longstanding one as well. There's many people who believe this as well. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. It says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high and led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also one who ascended far above heaven that he might fill all things. Now there are some who will say, well, Jesus descended from heaven to the earth, died for us, led out captives because we were captive in our sin. We were led out into heaven and there's nothing more going on in this text but that. Except that the text says into the lower parts of the earth. And the three passages that I told you that talked about demons who didn't keep their proper abode talked about a pit. And so Jesus could descend, but how does he lead a host of captives out of captivity? 
Maybe it is making a reference to the cross and the work on the cross and that we were captives. And when Jesus came to the cross, he made a way for us and he let us out. But there's also people who believe that Luke chapter 16, and I wanted to read that to you, but I'm running out of time. Shocking, I know. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus said, there was a certain man. And, and he didn't say, let me tell you the parable of a certain man. He said, there was a certain man, which would make you think there was really a person. If he opens up on a story by saying, there was a certain man named Lazarus and he died and a beggar that was outside of his home died on the same day. And Lazarus woke up in torment and he looked over and he saw the beggar being comforted by Abraham. And he cried out to Abraham, send him over to give me some water. And Abraham says, he, he can't. When you were on earth, you received good things and he received bad things. And now you're receiving torment and he's receiving good things. And he says, well, send it back to my brothers that my brothers would know and not come to this place. And, and you, again, you can read the account, but he finally gets to the place where he says, if he's not going to believe Abraham and Moses, then he's not going to believe even if someone comes back from the dead. But that's the truth with Jesus rising from the dead and it's the truth of Lazarus rising from the dead. So some believe that that describes the grave, the place of human souls. One part of it is torment and the other part of it is comfort. And that when Jesus descended into the pit, that he closed down the section that was the comfort section and took them all up into the presence of God. This would have been David and Moses and, and, and Elijah, and, or, or not Elijah, everybody but Elijah. Take, take that back. Because remember, Elijah didn't die. It would be David and, and Moses. And, and I can't believe I got out of all the people in the Old Testament, I pick out the guy that doesn't die. Jeremiah, it would be all of those guys that are there. And they would be led out of captivity. The point of my study, and I could have got it to it much quicker, is that Jesus never suffered in hell. That is a made-up teaching. And I don't know if it, if it has some kind of a sense where it seems like it is true. But the Bible never says such a thing and it goes against what the Bible says about the price that he paid on the cross, finishing the work for us, shedding his blood that our sins could be forgiven. And if anything, it reveals to us how important it is for us to rightly divide the word of truth. And as a pastor, encouraging you to study God's word, to learn it more. I love the passage that says studying the scriptures is better than searching for silver and gold. Isn't that incredible? What you get from studying the Word of God is better than silver and gold. And some of you guys were like, well, if I had searched for, I'd, I'd be all gung-ho about searching for silver and gold. Well, maybe we should be all gung-ho about searching the Bible. But rightly dividing it, taking heed that we are not deceived, that we might have the power of the Word of God working totally in our lives. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for this time that we've been able to have looking at what happened to Jesus between the time that he died and he resurrected. And Lord, we thank you that you gave your life for us on the cross and that you said it is finished. You completed the work there so that our sins could be forgiven by the shedding of your blood. And we thank you that you have given us that forgiveness and that you are faithful when we ask you to forgive us and you are just because Jesus took the wrath that we should have taken upon that cross. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would work with us and that you would give boldness to those that are here who have never made a commitment to you or need to come home. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. 
thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.